We're going to be looking at Christ in the book of Exodus. This is part two of our study on Old Testament Christology. So if you would open up to Exodus chapter 1, I am going to read the passage. It's only 22 verses. I'll read it, and then we'll pray and get into our study. Beginning at Exodus 1, 1, it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, now these are, of course, Jacob's sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were how many? Seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So didn't count Joseph and his family of four. And guess who else wasn't counted? Jacob. So all told, there were 75, which agrees with what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. Some people say, well, why does it say 70 in Exodus and it says 75 in in Acts? It's because Stephen was including Joseph's family and Jacob. So the Bible, there's always an answer for things you think are contradictions or other people think are contradictions. All right, so 70 souls. And verse 6 says, and Joseph died. We had read that in chapter 50, verse 26. The very last verse of Genesis said that Joseph died at, anybody remember how old? Very good. He was 110 years old. That's a long life, isn't it? If I lived that long, maybe I could finish this study on Old Testament Christology. And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. So everyone in Joseph's generation, all his brothers, they died off. Verse 7, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. And the land was filled with them. They sound like rabbits, don't they? (laughs) Verse 8, now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. He was fearful that they were going to multiply so much they join their enemies and replace them in Egypt. You know, the Israelites would take over the land of Egypt. Verse 11, therefore they did set over them, the Hebrews, taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied <laughs> and grew. And they were grieved, this is the Egyptians, because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. 
But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively. (laughs) They're hardy. And are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. They deliver before we can even get there. Wouldn't that be nice? Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. All right, that's our passage for study. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for this good attendance. Thank you for a brand new year and a brand new study. And we thank you, Father, for the thrill of hope that we can have even living in a weary world, that we can rejoice for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Thank you for your overwhelming love that pursues us relentlessly chasing us down and not ever letting us fall out of the security of your everlasting arms. And as we do come to this new study on the great book of Exodus, help us to rejoice always, even in the midst of our own years, as Joseph did, years of toil and affliction. Help us, Father, to be patient in trouble, to be kind in times of cruelty and meanness, to be selfless, in these days of utter selfishness all around us. Help us to be humble in the midst of pride and arrogance and Christ-like among the godless and always keep us centered on the fact that you have a plan, not only for this world and for history, but for each of us individually. And you do not ever, ever fail in your promise to work all things out together for good, for those who belong to you, for our good, for your glory. And now I would ask that the words of my lips and the thoughts and meditations of my heart and all of our hearts here collectively would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for we do ask in that glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you can change right away something on the handouts that I gave you. At the last minute this morning, I decided to change the title for this lesson. I don't know what I call it. The Book of Deliverance? I've had three titles because up here on my notes, I've got Blessed and Oppressed in Egypt. (laughs) But here's the new title for this lesson. Israel's Labor Pains. We even have midwives in this lesson. You'll understand as we go through. This is Israel's Labor Pains. You know, it would be impossible to understand the second book of Scripture, which is the book of Exodus, without first having at least read through Genesis. We didn't only read through it, we also studied through it. But you couldn't understand, for one thing, who these children of Israel are. Who in the world would they be, you know? Where'd they come from? 
You wouldn't know anything about Jacob and his sons and, and Joseph. So you have to have Genesis first before you get to Exodus. And throughout Genesis, we saw that there were clues of the Lord's grace in providing for man's redemption, his salvation, his deliverance from sin. You know, he fell into sin, disobeyed God. So the Lord provided clues about the way to be delivered from sin, which would be through the substitutionary atonement of a sinless blood sacrifice, a sin substitute. And those clues were progressively unveiled in the book of Genesis, beginning with Genesis 3.15. What is that called? Anybody remember in theology? Yes, very good. Proto, my own daughter did that? Proto-evangelium. It means the first proto-evangelistic message. And, you know, it was about uh, the promised seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent right away. Seed of a woman tells you that the coming Redeemer, Savior, would be miraculously born because women don't have seed. So he would be without a um, human father. So we had that clue. That's a biggie. And then there was, for example, the shed blood of the animals God used to clothe Adam and Eve. There was the altar of sacrifice that we saw Cain and Abel using. There were all of the altars of the patriarchs, which spoke of God's desire to redeem and restore fallen man to a place of fellowship with him. And then there was, of course, the, the almost sacrifice of an only begotten son on an altar, which ended when Isaac himself was saved by a sin substitute, a ram, a male lamb. And that was provided by God, wasn't it? All of it a picture of the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Um, all of these were picture types. This study is on typology, types, pictures of God's redemptive plan through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I came across a definition for a type by Schofield, and here's what it is. A type is a divinely purposed illustration of some truth. It may be a person, such as Joseph. Remember how we looked at 82 ways in which Joseph is a picture of Christ. We're going to see the same thing with Moses. He is a picture of Christ. It may be an event, such as the crossing of the Red Sea. It's a picture. It may be a thing, like the ark, was a picture of Christ and our safety in him from God's wrath on sin. It may be an institution, like marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. Or it could be a ceremony, such as the feasts of Israel. Types occur most frequently in the Pentateuch. Did you know that? What is the Pentateuch? 
Very good. The first five from the Greek word for pente, five, pente, and the tria tessera penti, five books by Moses, Pentateuch. More types, that's why it's going to take us longer to get through the Pentateuch than once we get into the other books. We'll fly faster, I think, if we get there, if I live long enough. <laughs> um, but types occur mo- mostly in the, in the Pentateuch, but they are found throughout the whole Old Testament. Now, here's a word that doesn't sound like what it is. The, an anti-type. Sounds like it's something against a type, doesn't it? But the word anti-type actually is the fulfillment of a type. And anti-types are generally found in the New Testament. For example, the anti-type of Joseph and Moses and the Ark and the feasts of Israel, the anti-type is Christ himself. He is the fulfillment of the types. Okay, so with Abraham... Back in Genesis with Abraham, the first patriarch, God began the work of founding a new nation. Remember he had formed 70 nations in Genesis 10? And just as you and I and all mankind fall far short of the glory of God, all the 70 nations fell far short of the glory of God. Remember, he had to wipe out everybody at Noah's time, and they all fell far short even after Noah. And he had to call out one man from Ur of the Chaldees, who was actually a pagan worshiper himself, to start a new nation. He's going to start all over again. Get it? With a 71st nation. And uh, it would be through this special chosen nation that he would bring his beloved son into the world, the promised redeemer, going back to Genesis 3.15. She was to be a nation divinely privileged with a special unconditional promise called the Abrahamic covenant. Remember how we talked about the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. What was her name, this new nation? Israel. And that came from the third patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord, and the Lord changed his name to Israel, which means Prince of God. This new nation was to be his witness to the rest of the world. So guess where he placed her? Guess which land he chose to put this nation? In the Middle East, right in the center of the land masses of the world. That makes sense. If you want that people to reach all the rest of the world, put her in the center of the land masses. That's exactly where she is. But So that was his plan with a new nation. But when the book of Genesis ended, Abraham's descendants were not in the land. They were out of the land. Why? Well, because Jacob's sons were in danger of becoming more influenced by the Canaanites, the pagan Canaanites around them. They were in danger of intermarrying with them. And then that would be the end of his nation from which he promised his savior, right? They were more in danger of of being influenced by the world than they were being an influence on the world, on the Canaanites. So God had to get them out of there. So, So he used Joseph. He used Joseph to get that fetal nation, okay? She's conceived. She's Picture her in the womb. He got her out of Canaan and put her into the womb of Egypt. Why did he do that? 
We talked about this last year. It's because the <clears throat> Egyptians had such prejudice. You talk about a prejudiced people. They were terrible. They thought they came from gods and everybody else was from lower, you know, everybody else was from the monkeys, I guess, or whatever. But um, they were very prejudiced against foreigners, period, but especially shepherds, anyone who dealt with animals like that. And so that prejudice, they would not intermingle with the Hebrew people. So that kept her isolated and insulated from the pagan culture and the religion all around her. So she's in the picture the womb of Egypt. Thanks to God's providence, Joseph's kind pharaoh, he was a kind pharaoh compared to other pharaohs, <laughs> he invited Joseph's family to dwell in the best land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And there we read already that she did what? She multiplied. That baby grew and grew and grew. and It says exceeding abundantly. She waxed exceeding mighty. And by the time she was delivered from Egypt's womb, she was the great nation that God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant. When Jacob received, remember when he found out Joseph was alive and Joseph wanted him to come to Egypt and live with him because there were, what, five more years of the famine? And then he got partway there and he thought, I wonder if this is God's will. And God gave him the thumbs up and said, yes, it is my will. Go ahead. You can go back down to Egypt. Uh, when he got that thumbs up, he uh, was promised not only that in Egypt he would become, his family would become a great nation, but he promised that he would return them to Canaan. That was God's promise. I'll make you a great nation there and I will return you to the land. Now, does God keep his promises? Absolutely keeps his promises, and therefore, we have the book of Exodus, <laughs> which is all about God's delivering of Israel from Egypt. Now, a census, if you look in Numbers, you don't have to, but Numbers 145, a census was taken, at the beginning of Israel's wilderness journey. And it's recorded in God's word that there were slightly over 600,000 males, male Hebrews, 20 years of age and older. Now that's only one-fourth of the Hebrew population because it didn't include women. That census didn't include women. It didn't include children, it didn't include teenagers, and it didn't include the Levites. They weren't counted. So if you take that number and you extend it out, including the other three-fourths, you get to a population of about two million people. How many went into the land of Egypt? Seventy, because Joseph was already there. Actually, 71 if you count Jacob. How many came out of Egypt? Two million. So you see what he, mean, he means what he says when they increased exceeding abundantly. That's a big increase. That was a big baby when it was born. Egypt was likely the most powerful nation on earth at that time in those days. And her gods with a small g 
were hailed as equally great and powerful. When the Lord showed forth both his uh, might, his power, in delivering Israel from Egypt to her new life and, and to her mission of restoring knowledge of him to the world, he simultaneously, when he did that, when he got her out of Egypt, he was also exposing the satanically inspired man-concocted lies about other gods. Are there other gods besides the one true God? No, there are demons, but there is no other God but God. The plagues, the power of the Passover blood, and the Red Sea crossing, they were awesome miracles. They were conspicuous miracles. Everyone saw them. And they served as a testimony to all the nations that the true God was the God of Israel. In Joshua 9.9, there were some uh, Hivites that knew about the miracle of God in Egypt and the plagues and the Passover. And I mean, word got out through the whole world. Rahab knew about it, didn't she? I mean, word got out about this mighty, mighty God. In Exodus 12, too, the Lord says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Period. And even Pharaoh's magicians, remember them? Even they eventually confessed and said, This is the finger of God. Now, the Exodus account serves as a strong lesson also on the foolishness of resisting God. Yes, it is very foolish to resist God. He's a little bit more powerful than we are, than puny little man or even puny little Pharaoh. Initially, remember when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, initially he asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? (laughs) Israel's deliverance and God's judgments on Pharaoh and on his people and on his entire army answered that question in a way that served not only as a lesson to Pharaoh, but a lesson to us even years later, many, many centuries later. And later on, God, through Moses, he's always speaking through Moses, but he said to Pharaoh, He said, for this cause have I raised you up. Who sets up kings and takes down kings and presidents and all that? The Lord. Remember we studied Daniel and he's the one that put Nebuchadnezzar on. He says, for this reason, God speaking, I have raised thee up, O Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, (laughs) to show thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout the earth. A key verse in Exodus is 6.6. You can remember that. Chapter 6, verse 6. Key verse. God, again, speaking through Moses, says to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. He says that a lot because he is. (laughs) I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with what? 
a stretched out arm and with great judgments. You know, isn't that particularly interesting in light of the redemption Christ made possible on the cross? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Interesting. Well, now on one of those, I have the outline. It took me like three days to come up with that outline, so I hope you appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, There's all kinds of outlines you can use for um, this book, but I decided to go with a really simple one. (laughs) Three parts in chapters 1 to 18, we're going to look at the exodus. In chapters 19 to 24, we're going to look at the law. And in chapters 25 to 40, it's all about the temple. And I'm telling you, when we get to the law and the temple, we'll move a whole lot quicker because there's a lot of repetition in some of those chapters. Now, the word exodus actually come, it means exit. Like I could say, look, there's the exodus right there. That's Latin, exodus for exit. It means departure, exit, or the way out. It's a Latin word that came from the Greek word for exit, which is exodus. Did you know that? I teach her Greek because she's my fellow Greek over there. That's the name that the Greek translators of the Hebrew original Old Testament gave to this book. It's a good name because that's what they did. They exit out of Egypt, exodus. But you know the Hebrews don't call it exodus. You know what they call it? weird but they just call it the first couple words of the of the book the hebrews call it these are the names that's a weird title for a book these are the names (laughs) but they say it in hebrew so it sounds like a name anyway that was just trivia four words commonly associated with the book of hebrews can anybody guess what they are four words you think of the book of exodus and you picture Handsome Charlton Heston standing there. Do you know that Charlton Heston went to my high school? I know, wow. I didn't know him. He was older than me. (laughs) Anyway, what do you think of? Four common words in in the Exodus. Let my people go. Yeah, said I think like seven times. Let my people go. Um, the book's human author is big question, trivia question. Who's the author of Exodus? Thank you. That's one of your homework questions. Wasn't that easy? Do you know how many churches out there say Moses didn't write the book of Exodus? He didn't write the book of Genesis. He didn't write the Pentateuch. You know who it was written by? Documentary hypothesis: J, E, P, and D. Four different guys, poured it, four different penmen wrote these books. Well, you know what? Jesus says it over and over again. Moses, Moses. So if it's good enough, Jesus says it was Moses. And other places, I've given you verses for your homework question to look up. The Bible itself says it was Moses. It's good enough for me. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And I'm glad you all said Moses and not J-E-P-D. All right, Genesis tells of, this is a quote from a woman named Henrietta Mears. She says, Genesis tells of humanity's failure under every test and in every condition. Genesis, that was Genesis. Did man fail over and over and over again? 
yes, and God would give him a second chance and he'd fail again. I mean, that's just the history of fallen man. Exodus, she says, is the thrilling, thrilling epic of God hastening to the rescue. Exodus begins by telling how God came down in grace to deliver an enslaved people. Exodus ends by declaring how God came down in glory to dwell in the midst of a redeemed people. And that's exactly what happens. If you look at the last five or six verses of the book, the glory, the Shekinah glory comes down into the tabernacle above the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So it begins with God coming down to redeem an enslaved people, and then it ends with him coming down to live in the midst of a redeemed people. A fascinating uh, truth, and I've got this sort of up there on the board for you, um, that I never saw before until I started studying this, but um, it's to see how the Holy Spirit progressively lays out a picture of God's redemptive work for man in the first six books of the Bible. What's the number for man? Six. Okay, so the first six books, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, give us God's progressive picture of how he would work out man's redemption. Genesis gives us the reason for man's desperate need for redemption. We wouldn't know why man needed to be redeemed and saved, would we? Without Genesis, he fell into sin. So the reason for our uh, need of a promised redeemer, what is that reason? Sin. Exodus presents the manner in which man would be redeemed. The exodus of Israel was only made possible because of God. Who initiates redemption? Always God. Without God, they would still, they, they would still be in Egypt. <laughs> and how did he accomplish their deliverance? Well, he did it through blood, Passover, the shedding of blood, putting on the doorposts of their home, and water, crossing over the Red Sea. So the manner of redemption was through blood and water. Christ's atonement. Well, first of all, he alone accomplished our redemption, didn't he? Yes, he did. And he did it through the shedding of his own blood. He was the Passover lamb, shedding of his blood and his death on our behalf. And his death, it's important that we know he actually died right? That he didn't just swoon or something, that he actually died. His death was proven uh, when water issued out of his heart when his side was pierced by a Roman spear. That gave proof of a ruptured heart. So literally, Jesus died of a broken heart, literally. Now, he gave up his own life, but he died of a broken heart. And then he went down into the waters of death for us so that death 
would pass over you and I. We're all firstborns, right? You're born out of your mother's womb. That's your physical birth. We're all firstborn, but we need to be born again, right? So this is all just a picture of redemption. He went down. That's why baptism is a picture of our identity identity with him. He went down to the waters of death so that death would pass over us and our crossing over into a new life and freedom from bondage to Egypt because if you're only born once, you're a firstborn, and you're in Egypt, and you're in bond. Egypt is a picture of what? The world. Egypt's a picture of the world. So through him, we would be secure in our new life. Are you following all this typology? It's just, it's really amazing. It's beautiful. There's so much of it. All right, so Genesis gives us the reason for man's desperate need for a redeemer. Exodus presents the manner in which man would be redeemed. Leviticus presents the purpose for our redemption. What is that purpose? What's the purpose of man? Why were we created? Who knows the Westminster Shorter Catechism? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God, to worship God. We learn of his holy requirements in the book of Leviticus. The law, which all men fall far short of attaining. Can anyone fulfill the law? Can anyone even fulfill the Ten Commandments? No. So we also find, uh, we find that we fall short. He gives us the law to show us that. And then uh, in, in Leviticus, we find God's provision for us because we can't attain the law. And so he gives a provision in, uh, through animal sacrifices to cover man's sin, cover, not cleanse, cover man's sin temporarily in anticipation of the sin substitute Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, who would come and as our kinsman redeemer fully cleanse us from sin, wipe it away. You see, all the Old Testament saints... Their sin was only temporarily covered. And when Jesus died, it was fully cleansed. All right, so there in Leviticus, we have the purpose for man's redemption. Don't you love the sound of that baby? How old? Two, oh, oh, look at how tiny. Oh, we're going to talk about babies. She's a girl. She would have been spared. <laughs> Numbers, okay, the book of Numbers, the walk and the uh, warfare of Israel in the wilderness. That's what we have in Numbers. You know, she's going through the wilderness. That typologically represents the spiritual walk and the warfare of God's people in this sojourn, this journey we have here through a dry and thirsty land. So that's a picture of our walk until we get to the promised land. And through numbers and looking at the Israelites, did they grumble and complain? Did they have some issues? Did Moses have a lot of headaches from those two million people? Oh, yes. So through them, we see our own failures uh, in the failures of that stiff-necked people. Um, And we also learn more about God's attributes, his wonderful 
attributes of his holiness and his justice and his long sufferance and his wisdom and his power, his mercy, etc., etc. And in Numbers, and that walk through the wilderness, we see our need for a mediator. And who was the mediator between God and man for the Israelites? Moses, who was our mediator, Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man. All right, then we come to the fifth book, Deuteronomy, calls for Israel's unyielding devotion to the Lord. The people, this is uh, the responsibility of the redeemed. Okay, so we've been redeemed, and our purpose is to worship and glorify God. Well, how do we worship and glorify him? We do it by being a witness for him. And we are not to neglect to uh, forget him or or to neglect to teach our children, the next generation, about him and about the miraculous uh, exodus from Egypt that he made possible. Every generation of Hebrews was supposed to tell that story over and over and over again to our, their children, to the next generation, so they wouldn't forget about it. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Tell our children and our grandchildren and any children we come into contact with through church or wherever about the gospel. That is our redemption, our spiritual redemption. See, the physical redemption of Israel is a picture of our spiritual redemption in Christ. So we're not to forget or take for granted the mighty deliverance that the Lord secured for us, literally by being the Passover lamb to take away our sin. And thereby, we can escape the sure death of all firstborns. Like I said, if you're only born once, you're going to experience the second death. You need to be born again. You need to be born spiritually. You see, I hope I'm not taking you too deep here, but I call this Israel's uh, labor pains because this exodus of Israel out of Egypt, she's in the womb of Egypt. And all the taskmasters and everything she's going under as slaves, they make her slaves. And it's labor pains and she's suffering until she's finally delivered by the mighty hand of God. And she, you know, through the Passover blood of the lamb and the crossing of the Red Sea. And when she comes to the other side, that's the, like the birth of the baby in the womb. Get it? That's Israel's birth. She's been in the womb until then. So she's on the other side of the Red Sea, but that's only her first birth. That's her physical birth. Well, Israel needs to be born again, doesn't she? So guess what? This whole thing is going to be repeated, basically, during the tribulation. The seven years, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus even said it's going to be like labor pains. The judgments, the plagues that will come on the whole world to get, you know, people's attention, to get Israel's attention. And it will work, and she'll finally go through all those labor pains. And when she comes out, when Jesus returns, she will be born again. That will be her spiritual birth. Are you getting it? It's all such a beautiful picture. It's all one whole book by one author. There's no doubt about it. You can't explain that J, E, P, and D put this together. No way. Nobody could. I mean, it's just an amazing book. Do you know how privileged, and I'm not bragging, but do you know how privileged you are to be able to come to a Bible study that gets into the meat of God's word? 
Don't take that for granted, ladies, because one day that's not going to be possible. This country of ours is going down the way they all did. We had such a wonderful chance when we started out, but all fall short of the glory of God, don't they? And things are just rapidly progressing where we're being persecuted in every way you can imagine. And our kids, our grandchildren, I don't know what they're going to see. But they're not going to have many Bible studies, churches that teach the word and the meat of the word like this. So soak it up. Tell your friends, this world, this country of ours needs Christ badly, his word. And it is so amazing. I always get so frustrated because I thought, I think if only everybody could hear the truth. I think millions would would believe it, but they're not hearing it. They're stopping up their stubborn, stiff-necked ears. Anyway, I'm getting off to preaching. Where was I? I was in Deuteronomy. Okay, we're not, well, that met up with it. We're not to neglect (laughs) passing on the good news. All right, well, the full picture of God's redemption is given to us in the sixth book of Scripture, which appropriately is named Joshua. You know, that's the same name as Jesus. Joshua and Jesus, same name. And what is the book of Joshua about? Well, we read about Israel's finally, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, she finally enters into the promised land. It is about the victorious life of the redeemed. Now, isn't that amazing? That is another evidence of the divine authorship. Now, Moses was the human author, but who was the divine author? Jesus author and finisher of our faith, God Almighty was the author of scripture. This is another proof of his authorship in the fact that the spirit used the actual historical events of Israel, you know, the history, to picture the great redemptive truths in the right sequence. If one of these books was out of sequence, it wouldn't work. Isn't it amazing? What do you say? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Wow. The numerical position of Exodus is also not without significance. It is the second book, isn't it? Do you know in Scripture, numbers have meaning? Okay, number one, Genesis, number one in Scripture means unity. Number two means division, divided. It also means witness because it takes how many to have a witness of some truth? Two. The first scriptural example of this was that on the second day of creation, what did God do? He divided the waters. Division. He divided the waters. In the first chapter of Exodus, Pharaoh orders a division to be made among the babies born to the Hebrew women. Sons are to be killed. Girls are to be spared. In the plagues, God makes a division between the Israelites and the Egyptians, even dividing between their cattle. You know, the Israelites' cattle were spared, but not the Egyptians' cattle. When the Israelites came to the Red Sea, Moses stretched forth his hand, and the waters were what? Divided. The veil, the curtain in the tabernacle, served the purpose of dividing between the holy place and the most holy place. There were how many midwives who boldly stood for God against Pharaoh? Two. 
they were probably the leaders because two midwives could not possibly take care of the labor and delivery for a population of two million. But they were probably the leaders of the midwife coalition or whatever. <laughs> How many brothers were bold spokesmen for God to Pharaoh? So you have two midwives and you have two brothers. And who were the spokesmen to Pharaoh? Moses and his brother Aaron. The Ten Commandments were written on how many stone tablets? Two. And I could go on and on. So everything has a reason. I mean, it's just all, again, perfect. Now, although Exodus contains no direct messianic prophecies, that's interesting to know. Not a single direct messianic prophecy in the whole book. Yet, it is full, as you've already seen, and I haven't even gotten very far, but it's full of pictures of Jesus. No direct prophecy, but many, many portraits of him. Uh, we do not find the doctrinal theme of the book, which is redemption. We don't ha find that rigidly spelled out. This is the theme of this book, redemption. But we do see it beautifully presented in all kinds of pictures, again, in illustrations. You know, in the early days of God's revelation to man. He had to tell man about himself because man would never know who he was or where he was or anything about him, right? So if we're going to find out about God, he had to tell us about him. So in the early days, you know what he did? What do you do when you're teaching your little, little preschoolers? Do you get out a book with all kinds of words in it? No, we start out with picture books, don't we? With little kids. That's what he did with that's why the Pentateuch, the first five books, is full of so many types. Because he's talking to preschoolers. And he's talking in pictures. So there's a lot of pictures. Uh, he used types, symbols, significant names. Remember how when we went through Genesis, the names mean things? Very important. Numbers, event sequences. He used illustrations, all those kind of things, to teach great doctrinal truths of the faith. Now, after Christ came, then these truths that were in picture form were more fully explained and expounded upon in the New Testament, particularly in the New Testament epistles. That's why you find a lot of doctrine in epistles. So the saying of Augustine is true. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The new is the old revealed. You have to think about that one. But here's another way to say it. The pictures of the Old Testament are understood in the principles of the New Testament. And then in your notes... You're going to have a lot of pages of notes when you get the email lesson, but I, I give you some examples of the pictures, okay? Um, <clears throat> and we're talking about most of them anyway during this lesson. There is an immense wealth of Christ, Christological typology. That's a mouthful. In the book of Exodus, Christological typology. In other words, a lot of pictures of Christ in Exodus. Furthermore, there is much in Exodus that anticipate events, anticipates events that are going to be yet future even from where we are in history. I mentioned this a little while ago. 
It's a book that will minister comfort and instruction to Abraham's descendants who will be living during the seven-year tribulation on earth. After the church is raptured out of here, you know, the seven years of tribulation, the coming of the Antichrist, all that, the book of Revelation, that experiences Daniel's 70th week. Remember, there's one week missing, week of seven years from his prophecy. Anyway, if you don't understand that, go get a study our book on Daniel. But uh, those seven years are going to be far worse, even though they'll be shorter, because Egypt was in labor pain. I mean, Israel was in Egypt in labor pains for centuries, like 400 years. So during the tribulation, that's only seven years. Uh, It's a lot shorter labor pain, but a lot more intense. And the reason for that is because the tyrant will be the most anti-Semitic and hardened of heart man ever to live. He'll make Moses's Pharaoh look like a pussycat. He'll be so awful. He'll be possessed by Satan. The Antichrist will be determined to annihilate Israel once and for all, which has been Satan's plan all along. And her groanings and her cries will be more intense than when she was in Egyptian bondage. God's wrath, his sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments will be more fearful and more extensive than the plague judgments. You know, the plague judgments were only on Egypt and the Egyptians. The trumpet, seal, and bowl judgments are going to be where? The whole world. The whole world. There is, again, going to be two witnesses, two mighty witnesses, who will show forth God's power by signs and miracles. Like Moses and Aaron, there's going to be two mighty witnesses during the seven, seven years of tribulation. But as with Moses and Aaron, their testimony will be rejected by unbelievers. Again, as was the case with Pharaoh's magicians, Satan's emissaries will be able to perform their own miracles to deceive the masses. Remember how Antichrist is going to establish a statue of himself and put it in the holy temple? just like Nebuchadnezzar did and make everybody worship it. And Satan's emissaries is somehow even going to make that image speak. Israel will be preserved as a, by a remnant who will be sustained by God in the wilderness. And uh, if you know your eschatology, you know what I'm talking about. Many think it'll be Petra. Anyway, and at his appointed time, The ultimate deliverer, not Moses, the ultimate deliverer, Jesus, will appear to vanquish the enemies of of his people by judgment far worse than the drowning of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And how is he going to destroy them? With what? No. The word word of his mouth. You're thinking of the mighty witnesses. (laughs) The word of his mouth. And then there's going to be an even greater exodus 
than the one led by Moses because the returned Christ, after he comes, the second coming, is going to gather all believing Jews scattered to all the Gentile nations of the world. He's going to gather them all back to the fullness of the land that he promised Abraham's descendants, not the Palestinians. Well, finally, Israel will believe what the church realizes is true today. Finally, Israel will realize that Jesus Christ is the perfect deliverer, the anti-type, the fulfillment of the imperfect Moses. He is, remember Moses said, there's coming a prophet like unto me in Deuteronomy. Jesus is that prophet like unto Moses, except perfect. Moses wasn't perfect. He started out by killing an Egyptian. That's not too perfect. (laughs) Um, And Jesus is the one true mediator. He is the great high priest of his people. You know, Aaron was the first high priest. But Jesus is even a greater high priest than the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical because he's an eternal priest, isn't he? After the order of who? Melchizedek. Well, Christ is also, as we go through this book, we're going to see he is the voice of the burning bush. Therefore, who is I am that I am? Jesus, thank you. Jesus. That shocks some people. It is Jesus. He is God. He is the Passover lamb. He is the unleavened bread, sinless. He is the pillar of cloud and fire. He is the way out of bondage and into freedom on the other side of the Red Sea. His redemptive work on Calvary's tree is represented by the miracle at Marah, where the water was bitter and they couldn't drink it, and what they put in the water to make it sweet, a tree picturing the cross. He is the rest and the refreshment of Elam. He is the manna from heaven. He is the smitten rock from which came poured forth what? Living water. And what is that picture? The Holy Spirit. He is the lawgiver. He is the fulfiller of the law. He's the perfect example of morality. Everything about the tabernacle. Everything. The colors, the furnishings, the... Uh, the uh, arrangement of the furnishings, the material they're made out of, the curtain, the priesthood, the the sacrifice, all, everything about the tabernacle pictures Jesus Christ. He is the tabernacle. He is God who came down to earth in a tent, in a human tent to dwell with man. The tabernacle is full of theology that is given in physical form. And we can be sure as Jesus walked the Emmaus Road with those two despondent disciples and opened up the Old Testament to tell them things concerning himself that he gave many examples of himself from the book of Exodus. Now, that was my introduction. (sighs) Oh, boy. Off to a good start. New Year. My New Year's resolution was, don't just take two hours to teach the women Three hours. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. 
All right, the first six verses of Exodus, they take us back to the closing chapter of Genesis, right? Okay, they, they, they link. The first six vi- verses link Exodus to Genesis. Um, you know, Jacob and his 11 sons and their family, they come into Egypt. Um, we learned that J- Joseph died, his whole generation died out. The children multiplied, of Israel multiplied, and they grew until they were 2 million people. Um, life in Egypt, living in Goshen, the lush fields of Goshen, that was, that was good for the Hebrews initially. Isn't this world, doesn't it, you know, sin for a while is pleasant? And, I mean, they enjoy it. You know what they did? Have you ever had company that overstayed their welcome? <laughs> there were only five years left of the famine. What do you think they should have done after the famine was done? Maybe they should have gone back to the land Abraham promised them, but things were so good, and they were just reproducing and having this lush land to live in, and they overstayed their welcome. Things got too comfortable in Egypt as they were enjoying their fish and their cucumbers and their melons and their garlic and their leeks. Uh, They were in danger of forgetting their inheritance as God's chosen people. You know, when Joseph's whole generation died out, their kids didn't even know about the land flowing with milk and honey. They'd never been there. Why would they care about going back to a place they'd never been? No, we like it here. We want to stay. So they got too comfortable. Too much, too much prosperity in the world has a strong tendency to enslave people. A lot of people are enslaved to this world. Do you know that? Too comfortable here. Too much fun. Too much pleasures and creature comforts. The Israelites became enslaved in Egypt before they were enslaved by Egypt. You know? Their prosperity and their, their population became a potential threat to the power of a new king. Now, Pharaoh, that new Joseph, he, he's dead a long time, okay? This new king comes to power. He doesn't know. I don't care who Joseph was. Big deal. I don't know anything about him. I don't care about him. And he, he just became threatened by their population increase. You see, God was using the growth of Israel and the rise of a hostile king for another dramatic divine intervention in the affairs of men. Even at the time Joseph brought his family into Egypt, they were there was an underlying prejudice against them, wasn't there? I mean, that helped to insulate them, but they were prejudiced against them because they were shepherds. So they lived in separation from the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians mostly lived in the cities, whereas they, the Hebrews were living up in the you know, pasture lands. Psalm 105 tells us it was God, God who gave them the increase so that they would be stronger than their enemies. So who who gave them such a fast reproduction rate? God. God is in charge of fertility. He did it. Not only was he fulfilling his promise to make Abraham's uh, descendants a great nation, but he was preparing them to go back and take over the land of Canaan. When they were only a family of 70... They couldn't take the whole land of Canaan away from all those, you know, Ivites, <laughs> the Canaanites and the Parasites and the, all those. There, there weren't enough of them. So when they come back two million strong, they can take full possession of the land. 
Pharaoh's plan, which was readily adopted by all his officials, was to enslave the Israelites so as to tighten control. They wanted to demoralize them. They wanted to frighten them so that they would not dare resist their Egyptian overlords and taskmasters. And so um, they, they had them build storage cities. Two are mentioned, Python and Ramesses. A lot of people think the Pharaoh's name was Ramesses. The city was named Ramesses. We don't know the Pharaoh's name. Don't get your theology from Disney. (laughs) Uh, So when I was in Egypt, we had an Egyptian tour guide, and I will never forget when we were touring, she said, now I know some of you, because we were a Christian group, some of you think that uh, we used the Israelite slave labor to build these things, but we didn't. They just volunteered in their spare time. (laughs) I couldn't believe my ears. They volunteered in their spare time to build all that. Anyway, it says they, they built the cities with uh, brick and mortar and the fe- even the fields. They had them out there working in the fields. Josephus says they even used the Hebrews to dig canals. But despite all the burdens put on the Hebrews for sla- with slave labor, they continued to multiply. They even, the, the more the cruel taskmasters whipped them, the more they reproduced. <laughs> Uh, so that the Egyptians eventually came to dread them. It says they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the people, even like Pharaoh, the people started getting paranoid. And they thought, you know, there's going to be a Hebrew population takeover. So their response was to increase their workload and intensify their suffering. And they did this for years and years and years. But that tactic failed. You know why it failed? Yes. They, they, they didn't understand. Who were they really fighting against? They were fighting against God. And you can never win when you fight against God. The irony of the Egyptian oppression was that the hard labor was making the Israelites physically stronger and the Egyptians weaker. And also... Um, it caused the Egyptians to become more dependent on the Israelites. They were doing all the work. And so they started getting dependent on them. And then, too, their persecution of the Israelites was used of God to unify. Now, these, the Israelites came from 12 brothers. Do you remember those initial 12 brothers? Did they have some problems with each other? Oh, my goodness. So you know there were fractions and friction and all kinds of things going on. But when you have a common enemy, you unify. And so they were actually bringing them together. They were making them stronger, and it just worked. It backfired. Well, considerable time passed from the first stage of Egyptian oppression, which is what we have in verses 1 to 14. And it got to the point where they were completely frustrated um, in their effort to curtail the rapid growth of the Israelites. So concern turned to panic. And what happens? The king, Pharaoh, decides that he is going to seek a solution to not only cut their population um, reproduction rate in half, at least in half, um, but eventually to annihilate them as a separate people. So what was his plan? He calls these two midwives to him, who are probably leaders of the other um, midwives who are responsible for the labor, labor and delivery of the Hebrew women. And he tells these two women that if there's a 
you know, when they go to deliver and help deliver, if it's a little baby boy born, what are they to do? Kill it. No, not yet. That's later. First, they're to kill it. Just kill it. And if it's a little girl, you can let it live. Well, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out pretty soon. Uh, you're going to have an awful lot of girls and no boys, and the girls are going to have to intermarry with the Egyptians, and pretty soon that would be... This is Satan. Who's behind this plan? Satan. Because he wants to destroy, he wants to annihilate the nation from which God promised the Savior, the seed of the woman who would crush his head. All right. Now, I don't think that this um, Pharaoh was too smart because it wouldn't take the Hebrew women very long to catch on to the idea that if they call the midwives and every time one of them had a boy, the boy was put to death. I mean, so they would tell the other wives and they wouldn't call for the midwives, right? Wouldn't you? I mean, just makes sense. But he didn't, it didn't even have to get to that point because the women, oh, these women, I've lost my place. What are their names? Shipra, you know what that means in Hebrew? Fair, love, as in beautiful, lovely. God sees the heart. Doesn't mean she was beautiful on the outside, but in, to him, God, she was fair and lovely. Names have meanings in the Bible. And Pua, now you probably wouldn't name your kid Pua. <laughs> oh, Pua on you. <laughs> but you know what that name means? Shine. Maybe you would. Shine as in beauty. So you have fair and, and shine. Now, his, his demand was for an abominable act of violence. It makes all our minds go thinking about abortion, doesn't it? Except this was after the baby was born. You know, that beautiful little baby coming out of the womb. Kill it. Kill it. Just like he wanted and wants to do with Israel. Kill it. Uh, but they feared God more than Pharaoh. And so they did not kill the baby boys. Yay. These two women, most people, if you ask their names, they probably would have to look it up, you know, a Bible trivia game or something. But they actually helped spare Israel from annihilation. Like Jochebed saving uh, Moses or like uh, Esther. I mean, these are great women of faith, aren't they? Great examples. Their lives were at risk, and yet they would not, they knew what was right. The moral law hadn't been written yet, hadn't been given. Thou shalt not kill. But the law is written in their hearts. They knew it was wrong to kill, especially an innocent little newborn baby boy. I just can't imagine that. So just like Paul, I mean, uh, Peter and John, remember when the Sanhedrin said, okay, we'll let you guys go. We won't put you in prison, but you're never, ever, ever to speak or teach about Jesus again. And what did they say? Now, whether it's right to obey you or God, hmm, you decide. And as soon as they were let go, what did they do? They preached till the day they died, didn't they? Even with more fervor. They preached and prayed so hard with the others that it says the building shook. That gives me goosebumps. Well, when Pharaoh was made, he called them in, the two midwives. He called them in and said, what have you done? And they said, well, you know, these women are so strong <laughs> and lively that they, they give the, you know, they birth the babies before we can even get there. Well... That might not have been the full truth, <laughs> but it is, you know, we are to obey those in authority over us, right? 
except when those in authority over us tell us to do something that is in direct contradiction to a higher authority, God. And then we obey God. And that's exactly what they did. And we know that God was pleased because he blessed them with houses of their own. You know what that literally means? They had families of their own. They probably, you know, saw all these women having these beautiful little babies and they never had any. Well, he gave, brought them each a husband and they also produced. And another way that he blessed them is that their names are written in the eternal word of God. We're studying their names today. Do you know that they have debated for centuries and centuries the name of the Pharaoh, the kind Pharaoh of Joseph? And they have debated for centuries the Pharaoh who who said, uh, Moses said, let my people go. And all the Pharaohs in between. Was it this one? Was it that? I mean, they debate. Nobody ever comes to a consensus. You cannot be dogmatic about the names of any of these Pharaohs. That's why I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. You can read until your brain gets sore. I know. It's time. But we do know the names of these two midwives, don't we? Yeah. So that was their other reward. All right. I am at the end. I am at the end. Um, There's more. Please read your notes when you get home. Um, He does end by, that didn't work, okay, because the midwives wouldn't cooperate. So Pharaoh does end by saying, who said that a little while ago? Yes. well, we're going to really have to do something. So he tells all his people, if there's a baby boy born among the Hebrews, grab it from that family and cast it in the river and drown it. And that's, of course, where we'll pick up next time with the uh, mother of Moses, mother and father of Moses and how he was spared. Father, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for the wonderful truths of this second book of Scripture. Like every one of the 66 books of Scripture, it is just so amazing. I never can just never get tired of how much wonder and truth there is in your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is our true redeemer, that he is the anti-type of all the types in Scripture. And Father, I would ask that if there is one here among us who has never been spiritually born again, that she would take care of that today because she can trust in the truth of your word. And we would uh, give all the glory to you for that wonderful, wonderful miracle of new life. I go with every woman, help her to be safe, and a witness to you until we return again. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.